Hey there, welcome to another edition of the Livewire House Party. I'm Luke Burbank. We are going to be talking to some folks this week who've ended up doing amazing stuff, and maybe not necessarily in the way that society would have expected. First up, writer Lauren Huff on growing up in a cult and then joining the Air Force and becoming a bouncer and then a cable installer who eventually wrote a viral essay that has become a full-fledged book. Then we're going to talk to Kiara Alegria Hudes. She co-wrote In the Heights, the musical, and she's going to explain how the Puerto Rican community in Philadelphia helped shape her Pulitzer Prize winning career. Then two guys from Florida who met in high school and now make music that defies easy categorization. We're going to hear some music from Black Violin. So that's the plan. Speaking of work, we're going to check in and get to it starting right after this. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Livewire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you can call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke. Nice hat. Thank you very much. I don't really read the Paris Review, but I have a handsome ball cap that (laughs) tells the world I'm classy. Hey, I have a question for you. Uh, Do you remember what you wanted to be when you grew up? Yeah, totally. What? Uh, A chef at Burger King. (laughs) Okay. Good to have a plan B. Yeah. I, I wanted to be an NBA basketball player. And the thing that's truly amazing was I was in my late 20s before I fully realized that wasn't going to happen. I mean, it could still happen, right? Well, I mean, anything is theoretically possible, but let's just say (laughs) the data does not point in the direction of me becoming an NBA player at age 40, almost 45. Uh, I'm I'm just blessed to have this job as host of this radio show. Speaking of which, should we get to it? Yeah, let's do it. Molly, are we recording? This party has started, Luke. All right. It was always Molly's dream to record the live warehouse party, even as a small child. So living it. Dreams come true. (laughs) All right. Take it away, Elena. From PRX, it's Livewire. Recorded from our actual houses, welcome to the Livewire house party. This week, writer Lauren Huff and playwright Kiara Alegria Hudes with music from Black Violin. I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello. And now, the host of Livewire... Luke Burbank! Oh, thank you so much, Elena Passarello. Thank you, everybody, for uh, tuning in. We have a great show in store for you this week. Uh, Of course, we always ask the audience a question, and because we're going to be talking to some people who have actually made some pretty incredible careers for themselves, we ask the audience, what do you want to be when you grow up? Which, by the way, does not only apply to your childhood. I mean, Mm -mm. it could be any age you know, still thinking about what it is you want to be when you grow up. We're going to hear people's answers to those questions coming up in a moment. First, though, uh, of course, it's time for the best news we heard all week. Our little uh, top of the show reminder that there are good things happening in the world all the time. And it's nice to take a moment to reflect on them. What is the best news you heard all week, Elena? Okay, here's some really exciting news coming out of Bentonville, Arkansas, (gasps) where um, a young change maker, age seven, named Cameron, decided that, well, she discovered that she had all these genes from Old Navy 
Okay, and like the pockets, denim, like pants. Yes, blue jeans, dungarees, okay. and shorts, and probably some kind of khaki or chino. And a lot of them, the pockets, the front pockets were sewn shut because they're girls' pants, which are modeled after women's pants, which often have non-functional pockets. What? You didn't know this. No, the male privilege had like <laughs> knows no end. Like I did not even know this was a clothing thing that was happening. Yeah, it's this weird long history of gendered pocket making that, you know, books have been written about and different things in history sort of influenced it, but women traditionally are not given places in their clothing to hold their things, Ugh. you know? So, um, and that's why they call it a pocket book, I'm assuming. Like, a, But, you know, you you often had your, your wealth outside of your person rather mm. than having it close to your person. And of course, Cameron's not thinking about right. this. She's seven years old. And this is what I like about the story. Her school was studying persuasive writing in class. And so her mom was like, if you don't like this, why don't you write a letter? And she said, dear old Navy, I do not like that the front pockets of the girls' jeans are fake. I want front pockets. I want front pockets because I want to put my hands in them. I would also like to put things in them. Would you consider making girls' jeans with front pockets that are not fake? Thank you for reading my request. Sincerely, Cameron Gardner, age seven. And it turns out there are some... Uh, old Navy girls' jeans uh, and and other types of pants that do have pockets. Uh, but obviously there are no boys' pants where the pockets are sewn shut. So I right. think Cameron has a point. But Old Navy responded and they sent her a few of those options and they said, okay. you know what, we're going to take this into account when we make our future design decisions. So the fact, the thing that makes this the best news I've heard is because a young person in a calm and uh, very deliberate and polite manner. Persuasive. Um, persuasive manner said that she needed something mm -hmm. and got a response. And that civil discussion that evokes change is, I think, a great way to move forward. <laughs> that is a, that's a great story. Now, uh, I will write a letter, a follow-up letter asking, can you not have the clothes please lose all of their sizing after one washing? It's my request to Old Navy, but that's just more of something I've been dealing with. The best news that I heard all week actually uh, happened in Taipei, hmm. where a, a guy, it actually story starts a year ago. This guy was out stand-up paddleboarding on a lake <laughs> that's called Sun Moon Lake, okay? Mm -hmm. And like anyone who is trying to stand up paddleboard for the first time, he was mostly falling off of the paddleboard. <laughs> he had his cell phone with him. Uh, and it was in one of those like waterproof sleeves that you can kind of like click shut. And at some point upon fall number or whatever, he lost the phone. It was oh. in the lake. Oh, the worst. So there's also been this kind of historic drought that's recently happened in Taipei, which is, of course, not great. Mm -mm. But a tiny silver lining is that. Like recently, the water level went down to the point where <laughs> this guy was able to go back to the lake and just see his cell phone. He did it himself. <laughs> yeah, the cell phone was just there on the dry lake bed in its like waterproof case. Don't and tell me that it wasn't still functional. Is it, it still functional? It was <gasps> still. Well, so he had to take it out of the thing. He had to take it home. He had to charge it. But oh. It turned right back on. A year later, a year of being at the bottom of this lake and the phone still works just fine. I had the sort of similar but different story happen where I once lost a phone when I was in Las Vegas mm -hmm. and I tracked the phone with my iPad uh, way far out, at least where the thing told me the phone was. And uh, I got out of the taxi cab and I went up to the door of the house where I thought the phone was and a very large individual answered the door and I said, where is my cell phone? And he said, what cell phone? And I said, have a great day. And then I left. <laughs> and so, you know, the fact that this guy got his phone back after a year at the bottom of the lake, that, that was the best news that I heard all week. All right, let's get our first guest invited on over to this here house party. Now, Elena, if you walked into a party and you mm -hmm. saw Lauren Huff standing there mm -hmm. holding forth, you would want to pull up a chair okay. because she <laughs> has got a lot of stories and they are fascinating. And by the way, just a heads up for everyone, this conversation we're about to have will have references to a cult that Lauren grew up in as well as people having sex. Uh, she's also been an Air Force airman a bouncer at a bar in Washington, D.C., and a cable installer. 
and now she is a professional writer as well. Her new essay collection is called Leaving Isn't the Hardest Part. Lauren Huff, welcome to the Livewire House Party. (laughs) Thank you. It's great to be here. A lot of people, um, myself included, first found out about you uh, because of this essay that you wrote about your time as a cable <laughs> installer that, um, as as they say, went viral. Um, is is that how you ended up actually getting the deal to write this book? Um, yeah, I really <laughs> didn't expect that to happen. Like I was failing out of creative writing and trying to not write a paper. So I just got stoned and got on Twitter and like, y'all want to hear some cable guy stories? Oh. <laughs> and uh <laughs> <laughs> the way that works is every lesbian does know every lesbian. And one of my friends from D.C. works at HuffPost and was like, hey, my editor wants this story if you can write it. So I did. And yeah, it. Uh, I mean, I've been working on a book, but you're kind of half-assing it. Um, sort of had to actually write it then. Because, <laughs> yeah, suddenly everybody wanted a book. I'm like, oh, yeah, that thing I wasn't writing. All right, cool. <laughs> How many... Uh, of the essays that are actually in this book, the final project, Leaving Isn't the Hardest Thing, um, how many of those had you actually written um, before embarking on the project to actually do this book like for real? Uh, I mean, I'd worked on random parts of random stories, but putting them into essay form was where things got fun because I could add commentary. I mean, that was kind of the thing about the Cable Guy stories. I didn't really care. I thought it was a throwaway. So I just wrote everything I thought and felt and let myself get pissed off and write it. And sort of the same with these essays. I'd written the stories before, but just very listing things that happened. Turns out it works a little better when you say what you think about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> a big part of this book is the fact that you grew up in this cult called the the Children of God. And for people that aren't familiar with that specific cult, what was you know, for lack of a better way to put it, the overall vibe of this thing. Like, what what were what was your experience like growing up in it? I mean, here's the thing. Yeah, it was a sex cult, and it's famously known for a sex cult, but as soon as you're putting a schedule on the wall, I don't know how much fun a sex cult really is, even for the adults <laughs> who thought they were joining a sex cult for free love. I used to switch my stepdad's name over to people he hated. So you, you actually did that? Yeah. You write that in the book that... Like there was this calendar on the wall, a schedule for who would be hooking up with with whom and that you would actually like switch the names out just to like get back your stepdad. Yeah, I would totally mess with it. But I mean, for me, for the kids, it was just we were the child care. We were the housekeeping. We were the kitchen crew. Um, My sister was in charge of the kitchen at like 14. It was for a huge home of like 300 people. It was ridiculous. So yeah, it was it was a lot of changing diapers and watching little kids and studying and reading and memorizing verses. It's I think people are picturing like white robes and ceremonies when they hear the word cult and it was just bad clothing and chores. <laughs> yeah, one thing I was wondering about cuz I also grew up in a really um, kind of intense religious environment and lived on a commune when I was really little was the kind of feeling around the end times, which I know is a big thing they talked about in the children of God. And I know for me, it was like a not great feeling <laughs> to go to bed most nights thinking, yeah, this is probably it. How much is the pandemic with you because of that though? <laughs> because it has with me. I'm like, damn it. I finally stopped like preparing for the end of the world in my head. There was always that thing at the back of my mind. I didn't believe in the Antichrist. I don't believe in the Antichrist. I don't think the mark of the beast is going to happen. I don't think I'm going to be running around in the woods fighting the Antichrist soldiers. But I still have like two months of food stocked up just in case. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And now the pandemic happened and suddenly it was, all right, I'm not doing the end of the world again. (laughs) We've got to take a quick break, but I actually want to talk uh, more about that when we come back, which is just what your life looked like after you got out of the cult and, you know, the sort of poverty that you have continued to deal with throughout uh, a lot of your life and and, and what that's looked like for you and how that's impacted you. Uh, We've got to take that quick break, though. We are talking to Lauren Huff. Her new book is Leaving Isn't the Hardest Thing. This is the Livewire House Party. Back in just a moment. Hey, Elena. 
Hey, Luke, I didn't see you there. It's that time of year again. My seasonal allergies are back. Oh, congratulations. But also, it's our spring member drive, which is happening right now through May 17th. Oh, I like that much more than seasonal allergies. Yeah, if you are not yet a member of Livewire's League of Extraordinary Listeners, well, now is the time to do it. Why? Well, because this League of Extraordinary Listeners uh, is what keeps the lights on over at Livewire Inc., uh, which is definitely not the association that we are part of. I'm probably a 501c3. They don't let me near any of the paperwork mm-hmm. or bookkeeping, and it's really better that way. Yes. Point is, we... We are only able to keep doing this show because of support from our members, and we would love it if you could join us in that right now. Plus, there are all kinds of sweet perks, including uh, special discounted tickets to live recordings, on-air shout-outs, exclusive content. Uh, And, Elena, uh, one more thing that, of course, we would not be a self-respecting public radio show if we didn't offer this. If we didn't offer the most iconic public radio swag of all time, a tote bag. True iconic status. Yeah, but it's not just any tote bag. This is like a really good tote bag. It's got a second zipper, an internal zipper. Yes, whatever you want to put in the tote bag, that's your business, okay? What we're mm-hmm. here to talk about is you keeping Livewire going. So head on over to livewireradio.org to see the various member levels. It does not matter how much you are giving every month to Livewire. It just matters that you do it because it goes a long way for us. So thank you. Vacations, weddings, birthdays, and reunions. Oh my, there's so much going on. Get the most out of your spring plans by stocking up on pre-alcohol now. Zbiotics pre-alcohol probiotic drink is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic. It was invented by PhD scientists to tackle rough mornings after drinking. Here's how it works. When you drink, alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. It's this byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your rough next day. Zbiotics produces an enzyme to break this byproduct down. Just remember to make Zbiotics your first drink of the night, drink responsibly, and you'll feel your best tomorrow. Go to zbiotics.com/livewire to get 15% off your first order when you use livewire at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with 100% money back guarantee, so if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember to head to zbiotics.com/livewire and use the code livewire at checkout for 15% off. Thank you to Zbiotics for sponsoring this episode and our good times. Welcome back to the Live Wire House Party from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank at my house, Lena Passarello, checking in from her place. And we are talking to Lauren Huff, whose new book of essays is Leaving Isn't the Hardest Thing. Um, you know, when you got out of this uh, this cult, the children of God, uh, you sort of you join the Air Force and 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 you write that happy, well-adjusted people don't join the military. <laughs> <laughs> they really don't, though. Um, I don't. It's I mean, sometimes they do though. It's it's like it's our college program in this country. If you mm-hmm. don't get a scholarship and your parents can't afford to pay for it, mm-hmm. it's the fastest way out of your hometown, and you're promised a college degree promise success in life and you know that may work for some and good for them like i have a friend i went to basic training with as an officer now did the right track went to school everything else and she's reading my book about how it can go the other way where Mm -hmm. you end up living in your car afterwards yeah it sounds like you had a very different experience uh, in the military particularly because of being targeted um, for being gay and then also this bizarre allegation that you had torched your own car for some reason, which you ended up going on trial for military trial. And you could have potentially done like 10 years in military prison. Yeah. Uh, it was a little scary. <laughs> it's a, it was a strange thing that my, it was hard to take seriously on some level because at some point it was so ridiculous who would torch their own car to avoid going to Greece. That was my motive, mm-hmm. according to them, is why would I want to leave Sumter, South Carolina and go live on an island in Greece by the beach? That would be torture. And so oh, you would right. light your Acura <laughs> on fire yeah. to avoid <laughs> that deployment? I mean, that was that yeah. was their working theory. Um, it made no sense. And because I hadn't told anybody about death threats, I served under Don't Ask, Don't Tell. So showing someone, hey, I'm being harassed for being gay. 
felt a whole lot like saying I'm gay and then I would be thrown out. I was trying to save my career. You did end up leaving the military or being dishonorably discharged. Uh, and so then you end up in D.C. You're you're working as a bouncer at a bar. But it just seems like a thread that really runs through this book is the poverty that you were dealing with through so much of your kind of young adult life. And I'm just wondering, for people that are listening to this right now and they haven't lived that experience, what is the emotional impact of that kind of just constant financial pressure? It makes it hard to really think about. I mean, you're supposed to be digging out of it, but you're you're constantly just solving the next crisis. It's there's no you don't have an ability to plan or to like try to strategize a way out of it. Part of the problem is is being poor is expensive as hell. You can't cash a check without going to a cash, check cashing place that takes money out of it. You know, you can't afford the dental work immediately. So you end up having to get a root canal. Mm -hmm. You can't fix your brakes. There goes your rotors. There's a surcharge for everything. And it's just for being poor. I mean, I still occasionally say, oh, I'm broke. And I remember I have a checking account. A lot of people just don't. That's not an option. They test your credit to get one. So yeah, it, it, it's just, constantly frustrating. There's an anxiety that never really leaves your chest. Mm. This is the Livewire House Party. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarella. We're talking to Lauren Huff about uh, her new book, Leaving Isn't the Hardest Thing. What was the experience like for you to go back and revisit, um, you know, these moments from your life, a, a number of which were pretty traumatic? Um, do you think it helped you actually process uh, those those experiences or make some sort of meaning from them? God, I hate to say it because my shrink might hear this, but yes, it <laughs> probably did help. <laughs> it probably did help. Gary. Um, Gary. <laughs> Shout out to Gary. <laughs> Gary. Gary. Um, the weird thing about it is you're looking at these stories from your past and you thought you knew what they meant. Um, every part of, I was writing about an argument I had with an ex that's 15 years ago and yeah, I hadn't really thought about it for 15 years and it turns out I was wrong, <laughs> which is <laughs> infuriating. <laughs> yeah. There's something about looking at the past from an adult's eyes, even just little things like there's that moment we all realize that most of the adults who were mean to you were just hung over. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that makes me think of another question that I wanted to ask um, about Twitter, because you're, I mean, this is a literary book, but you're also a writer who, I, I know you got the cable guy essay first spotted through this run of tweets that you did, and you're on Twitter all the time talking to people and stuff. And do you think Twitter can make a writer better? Yeah. In what ways do you think? Well, especially when it, the characters were limited at first. And don't get me wrong, I take full advantage of the double characters. But for you kids out there, we used to have a limitation. <laughs> yeah, to tell a joke, you had to cut every extra word. You had to figure out what exactly fit into the tweet to make it punch. Um, arranging things when you're writing a thread so that people will click on the first tweet, but also read the rest of them. Um, yeah, I think it helps. And I think it's a giant time suck that we're not getting paid for. <laughs> um, but there are times when I was writing another essay where I I would be completely stuck on what I was supposed to write next. And it's just add another tweet to it and it'll work. That's awesome. And it does. And it's infuriating, but <laughs> it <laughs> it does help. You have had a lot of jobs in your life, um, you know. Uh, airman in the Air Force, a bouncer in a bar, a cable installer, survivor of a childhood sex cult. Now your your primary job title would be writer. How's that feel for you? It's it is awesome. I really haven't wrapped my head around it yet. That I'll see my name on lists. These book lists keep coming out, and I see my name next to Elizabeth McCracken's, and it blows my mind every time. Um, <laughs> there's also the problem of never tell someone you're writing a book because after a while they stop asking and that's actually the worst part mm -hmm. it is, the worst part isn't when they're like hey how's your book coming along it's when they just stop 
(laughs) (laughs) So finally being able to post that link. I don't think I've been on Facebook in two years, but as soon as the book sold, uh, I slid right in. Guess what? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Lauren Huff, uh, her new book is Leaving Isn't the Hardest Thing. Uh, and it is a fascinating read. Lauren, thank you so much for coming on the Livewire House Party. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was fun. Hey, special thanks of this episode to Maureen Wolf of Tigered, Oregon. Maureen is part of the Livewire member community and generously supports the show with a donation each month, which we are very, very grateful for because it's how we're able to keep doing things around here. So a big thanks this week to Maureen for supporting Livewire. This is the Livewire House Party. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. Of course, we like to ask the audience a question each week. And because we're talking to people that have managed to carve out some some pretty cool careers for themselves, uh, we wanted to ask the listeners, uh, what do you want to be when you grow up? And we wanted to make sure that it wasn't, (laughs) this wasn't just stuck in the kind of time frame of like when you're a little kid, but just maybe even right now, maybe you're even listening to this at your real job, but you still have something else that you want to be when you grow up. Elena has been collecting up those responses. Uh, What's jumping out at you? I want to be like half of these things that people are saying. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) This is a great brainstorming list for me. How about this one from Margaret? Margaret wants to be a movie location scout. Oh, yeah. Right? That is a, that's a cool job. I've never been in a movie, okay, but I was in a commercial once, a beer commercial Uh that filmed in Canada. And the location (laughs) scout found this this really out of the way like bar called the last chance saloon in Wayne, Alberta, Canada. And it was just like Mm. out with like the oil fields and stuff. Mm. And we rolled in there with this big production and I thought we were pretty cool because, you know, we had all these camera trucks and there's these two crusty old guys sitting in the back of the bar. And after we'd done our shoot, they said, we thought it was cooler when Jackie Chan was here because they apparently (laughs) had just been shooting an Owen Wilson and Jackie Chan movie at the same bar like the previous week. Well, that's the thing that I was thinking about because my first thought was, oh, you can go to all these fabulous places. But what if location scouts have like beats and your beat is apocalyptic movies and Mm. you're just looking at like burned out airplane hangers all the time and trying to find like ghost towns or whatever. Like you want to get the beat where you like are always on tropical islands. I only want to do location scouting for hammock commercials. (laughs) <laughs> just just nobody, something on a beach with a little breeze. Yeah, nobody ever puts a hammock somewhere stupid. Like no, hammocks right. are always in the best places. Always where you want to be. Um, yeah. All right. Uh, what's another thing that one of our listeners wants to be when they grow up? Uh, how about this one from Megan? Megan would like to be a futurist. Okay. Now, <laughs> I have some real questions. Okay. Because a lot of people now have futurist as part of their like Twitter bio or – yeah. You know, like they're releasing some kind of web type video where they're talking usually into a headset microphone, often around technology. That's being a futurist. Like the kind of TED Talks I never watch kind of a thing. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Okay. I'm more of a, like whatever, what's the opposite? A a rememberist? (laughs) I can't (laughs) stop remembering things that happened in the past and getting stuck with them. I have no vision for the future. You're a nostalgist. That's right. Okay, uh, one more thing that one of our listeners wants to be when they grow up, whenever that might be. Okay, uh, how about this one from Michelle? Michelle would like to be a roller derby girl. That's, you know, I mean, that seems like once the pandemic's over to be very achievable. Mm-hmm. Did you ever think about what your, you know, at least women in roller derby always have these amazing names. Right. Like, like La Dolce Beta. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, though. I've given like zero thought to my roller derby name. Do you have any ideas? Oh, uh, hmm. How about Luke Gerbank? <laughs> you know, because it's supposed to be kind of mean. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Okay. Well, it's settled. All right. Elena, thank you for that. You're welcome. Um, thanks to everybody who sent in their responses. Uh, we're going to reveal next week's question at the end of this show. So stick around for that. In the meantime, uh, let's welcome our next guest over to the house party. And she has a pretty amazing resume uh, and an equally fascinating lived experience, Chiara Alegria Hudes. 
co-wrote the Broadway musical In the Heights, along with Lin-Manuel Miranda. Uh, She also won a Pulitzer Prize for her play Water by the Spoonful. And now she has written this really incredible new memoir called My Broken Language. It's about growing up uh, with this large extended Puerto Rican family and how they really inspired a lot of her work. And we are very excited to have her here on Livewire, Kiara Alegria Hudes. Welcome to the Livewire House Party. Woo-hoo! Thank you. Woo-woo! Um, this book starts with you as a kid, and you're actually leaving Philadelphia to go live on a farm with your parents. And I was all sort of like anticipating that it was going to be a story about how much you hated living on the farm because <laughs> it was like so different than like Philadelphia. And actually, it sounds like you kind of liked it out there. Like you, you, you were pretty at home in nature and the woods. I loved it. I mean, it's funny because I have very consciously thought about the book as my experiencing straddling and bridging multiple and often conflicting realities, like speaking English and Spanish at home, um, having my parents' interfaith relationship. But I never thought of it also as like being a city kid and a country kid, that both of those things are are very true in my heart. Then your parents eventually end up splitting up. And then you go, you leave the farm and then you go back to Philadelphia where you're mostly surrounded by your mom's side of the family. Uh, And it's a big part of this book, I think, is you trying to sort of reconcile your identity a little bit as a person who's has Puerto Rican heritage and also Jewish Mm -hmm. heritage. When did that start to be something in your mind that you recognized you had to kind of figure out for yourself? Everything was pretty seamless until my parents separated. And then once they lived in different you know, my mom is a brown Boricua woman. My dad is a white Jewish man. And their pairing seemed perfectly natural to me because it was my reality until they separated. And then all of a sudden they lived in very different and contrasting segregated neighborhoods. And these two components of my identity were really infrastructurally separated in my life. And so that's when I became conscious of you know, there's a problem here. I don't kind of fully align with myself. Right. You write that in the book. I think you, you'd you say that, you know, speaking English as your first language when your mom's side of the family, a lot of them spoke Spanish as kind of their first language. I think you write my words and my world did not align, which you said perhaps made me a lost yes. soul. Yes. And I, I think that as I became a teenager and I really discovered a love and passion for literature, my skills with the English language only got better and better. And the better I got at it, the more conscious I became that English really lacked the vocabulary to describe certain parts of myself, to describe my reality Mm -hmm. and some of my truths. And so I had this language problem, what, what to do, you know, how, what language do I use to be most me? Um, and by the end of the book, I discover that when I become a writer. I was wondering if you might be able to read a little bit from, from the new memoir, um, in, in particular, uh, the, the chapter called Mom's Accent. Okay, so at this point, I'm in high school when I'm writing this. My non-Latino friends always had a comment when mom answered. After she handed me the phone, they'd be like, her accent is decent. I don't hear it, I'd say. They'd be like, stop playing, yes you do. Old friends found comfort in her vowel-rich hello. New friends just got confused. If mom answered, they'd be like, yo, are you a jungle fever, baby? I thought you was white, but your mom sounds pure Spanish Harlem. Mom's cadences were invisible to me, with a few exceptions. When mom said obnoxious, it rhymed with precocious. Precocious? Obnoxious. When mom said Home Depot, it rhymed with teapot. Teapot? Home Depot. When mom said realm, it rhymed with stay calm. Stay calm, realm. I corrected her in the car. I corrected her in the living room. No cash register or playground was too public to fix her blunder. Sometimes it was embarrassment, which I pretended was charity. Others, it was the know-it-all cockiness of youth, and still others, to tease a mystical giantess. Her numinous ass needed reminders that I was down here in the plebeian realm. She never once said, F*** you, child, stop colonizing my ass. But she never changed her pronunciation either. We went to Home Depot a lot, so she was definitely asserting her right of mispronunciation. 
Kiara Alegria Hudes reading from her book, My Broken Language. Um, so that was kind of talking about your, your mother's relationship with English. Uh, but uh, beyond that, your mom also had a relationship with what is sometimes known as Santeria. Yes. But I guess it's it's a Lukumi. Is that the specific version of, of a spiritual practice that your mother follows? Well, there's a few names for it. Um, so it was popularly known in my adolescence as Santeria. There were a bunch of horror flicks that referred to it and kind of degraded the philosophy and the faith. But um, so I so I use that word kind of cautiously. Lukumi is another word for this path. Ifa is another word for this path for the um, the Yoruban based Afro-Caribbean faith. Well, what was that like for you uh, to to be a kid who, whose mom was a was a practitioner of this? I mean, there's a story from the book where you have a turtle living in your bathtub I thought that, again, I never knew where this book was going to go. <laughs> I thought this was going to be the story of you and the turtle falling in love. And that's not how it ends it for the turtle. It sounds like the story of my life, never knowing which way it's going to go. Um, I, my mother has a spiritual gift, which I never totally understood because I don't share that gift. My gifts are different. Um, so I have seen her do lots of natural healing. She was a gifted herbalist. And as her studies in this particular path to become a priest um, deepened and intensified, um, I saw more and more. I saw I saw her be possessed, um, experience spirit possession, and I also witnessed animal sacrifices, which were part of the practice. And as a child, mm -hmm. it was pretty scary and confusing, even though some of the nights I witnessed these things, I had had a cheesesteak for lunch, which apparently was not upsetting <laughs> to me at all. Um, you know, right. so, and I understood these contradictions a little bit. These were ceremonial practices um, that were misunderstood by myself included to be blessings. And then after these practices, uh, you know, when the turtle I had befriended or the chicken who was in the backyard or the goat who was in the basement, uh, after they were sacrificed, they were cooked and we ate them as mm -hmm. meals, you know, but somehow the honesty of that act was still mm -hmm. terrifying to me. Life and death is, is confusing and terrifying to us all. And it took study and perspective to understand and appreciate, okay, well, yeah, those deaths scared me, but they also nurtured me. I ate that goat stew. It was delicious, mm -hmm. you know? <laughs> yeah, you, you talk in the book about how because your your father, your your biological father, was a you know Asimov reader and a, a person who was you know not given to sort of religious thought. Your dad doesn't come off great all the time in this book. Uh, were you concerned about putting that out there? I mean, it, this is now out for the whole world to read. Um, I adore my dad, and you know. We have had a long history of ups and downs, and we have been honest with each other about this. My intention was not to hurt him, but it was to look at, you know, my cultural experience being from a mixed house. Um, but he also bought me my first typewriter. He made me my first writing mm -hmm. desk that I wrote this book on, and it's a beautiful, Love. he's an artisan, he's a woodworker, and it's a beautiful desk. And so I think he has given me a great act of generosity saying, it's okay. You can write your life. Uh, you know, he's strong enough to take it. So yeah, I was confused when my mom was um, telling me about times she had spoken to spirits. And then I went to get dad's take on this. And he was like, God don't exist, kid. You know, I'm like, <laughs> okay, so one of my parents is right. And one of them is wrong. Which one is it? You know, um, I, I, I had to discover that answer on my own. I couldn't help but thinking about like you have another language, which is the language of playwriting, <laughs> right? I, I love Water by the Spoonful. And that must have been some kind of re-education to start to have to work with narrative to make a book, right? Rather than using the parameters of playwriting. Did you have like a, a strategy or a... My strategy as a writer has always been eavesdropping. So I think that this was born when the little kid left West Philly and moved to the horse farm. Mm -hmm. 
I would go to the woods by myself and I'd eavesdrop on the frogs. I'd follow my ears to find where the birds were, you know? And so <laughs> my mom would tell me stories I'd ease, and I'd eavesdrop on some of her conversations on the phone with her sisters. And then at a certain point in my writing life, I just start writing down what I'm hearing. I mean, God bless my family members. You know, I, I don't think they were aware <laughs> of this fact, you know, but, um, and then I walk around New York City as an adult. Um, after the book ends, also still eavesdropping, always eavesdropping, always writing mm -hmm. down the way. I love the way humans speak. There is no, no more beautiful instrument to me than the human conversational voice. So for the book, the only difference is I have to eavesdrop on what's going in, going on inside myself. I had always been listening mm -hmm. externally, really in love with the way other people speak. Um, and things that I thought were just kind of vague, emotions in my mind when I really paid attention and listened, I, I discovered a lot more specificity and dynamism than I had um, originally realized. We are talking to Chiara Alegria Hudes uh, about her new memoir, My Broken Language. Um, that's a book that you wrote, but then you also wrote the book <laughs> for In the Heights. For people that don't really know, like play terminology, what does that actually mean? You wrote okay, the book. Okay, this for makes In the me Heights. want to pull my hair out. It is the most confusing thing. It's like meant to <laughs> yeah. make people not understand. Why it's not called the script of a musical, I'll never understand. What it means is it's the <laughs> script of a musical. So it's, it's also the story. So with Lin-Manuel, I wrote the story of In the Heights and the script. And he wrote the music and the lyrics. Did you have a sense when you were working on, I mean, a lot of people now, of course, associate Lin-Manuel with Hamilton, but In the Heights... It was a huge hit, uh, you know, all on its own, and you won a Tony for it. And, I mean, did you have a sense when you guys were creating that that this was something really special that was going to really be well-received? You know, in order to write a piece, in order to write this book, My Broken Language, in order to write In the Heights, I have to know why a piece is special to me. Um, and that's a conversation I have to have with myself every day. Why is this special? Why does this matter? And I have to just proceed with faith that if it's special to me and matters to me, someone else might feel that way too. Um, when I start to think too far outside of my experience and wonder what's a reader going to think, I get in trouble and I, I just start getting nervous. The writing's not as good. Is that, you think, the key to your writing or at least why why? you're such a talented playwright and writer is because of just having a really authentic voice that you really kind of stick to? <laughs> you know, this notion of the authentic voice is one that I, I find a little bit perplexing because I think, as I discuss in my broken language, I always felt like, how could I have one authentic voice? There's like 50 warring selves mm. and truths that are housed within me. Mm. Um, and so... I think my authentic voice is more symphonic. You know, there's there's a lot of voices in there. And so I'm trying to listen close and not choose one, but actually let those contradictions be present. Your mother um, appears in this book frequently. Um, has she had a chance to read it? It turned out that I had already written about... Um, some of her experiences in the faith early on. And I was nervous to write about those because they really were shamed and maligned um, in my adolescence. Mm. There was a reason why she kept things quiet because she wanted to mm. proceed with her faith without, you know, outside critique. I was like, what is she going to think of me writing these things? So I, of course, I showed her an early draft. And this was one of the amazing parts of the process for me. Then she called me and told me more family history, told me more and more. So mm. I learned so much more family history from her reading early drafts. And, you know, really at the end of the day, I could say, well, mom, it's your fault because you're the one who told me to be a writer. <laughs> um, and I, I think she was... She felt now is the time, you know, we don't need those old silences anymore. Tell tell the truth. Tell who we are. Well, it's a it's an amazing book. Uh, it's My Broken Language, uh, which is Chiara Alegria Hudes's new memoir. Uh, it is out now. Thank you so much for coming on the Livewire House Party and telling us about it. So fun. Thanks for inviting me to the party. That was Chiara Alegria Hudes right here on the Livewire House Party. Her new memoir is 
My Broken Language. And also look for the film version of In the Heights, which she also wrote. That's going to be coming out soon. All right, we have been talking about careers this week, and our next guests, they met in orchestra class at Dillard High School in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and then they continued their classical training on the violin and the viola through college. After college, they sort of reconnected to produce beats for 2 Chains and Lil Wayne, among many others. They've now gone on to release four albums, including last year's Grammy-nominated Take the Stairs. Please welcome... Black violin to the Live Wire House Party. Hey, thanks for having us. Uh, I understand you, you guys met in high school music class. Did you like each other initially, or were, did you feel like you were rivals? What was the original relationship like? I think the original relationship was like, you know, because he was a year uh, above me, and I remember coming into to class, and I was just like. Damn, he's good. Like, <laughs> you know, I gotta, I gotta compete against that. I gotta, I gotta compete of a first chair with this dude. You know, mm. and um, it took me like a few weeks. You know, what I'm saying I got first chair. He was, you know, trying to, <laughs> trying to keep up. You know, what I'm saying so. And then Kev, you got into it because your mom was trying to keep you out of trouble. Yeah, my mama, my mama felt like I was going down the wrong path, so she wanted to, uh, you know, just get me into something else. She didn't think that this was going to happen. She was just literally trying to get me away from the kids in my neighborhood in any way she could. So she's like, oh, music class, go to that. And then I kind of took a liking to it. My teacher kind of took, you know, um, took me under her wing and, you know, taught me everything she knew. And then, you know, got to high school, meet this guy, and then we really started kind of flipping it up. And um, and then I think it just sort of happened, you know. She was never like the mom was like, go in a room and practice right now. She was never really like that. It was really more about trying to expose me to as many things as possible and hoping that I grab one of them, you know. And and this is the one that I ended up, you know, grabbing hold of. Cool. It's funny because if you type black violin into Google, one of the first things of the people also ask thing is what genre is black violin? Really? It's like people That's are Googling this on the regular, trying to figure <laughs> out exactly what genre it is. How do you guys describe the music that you make? I mean, that, I think that's an, um, that's a great thing when people are just like, what what is this? I think yeah. that alone says what we are, you know, like uh -huh. just the idea, like we're genreless, undefinable. Know? Yeah, undefinable. Yeah. So yeah. I I love that. That's one of that's the, one of the best things anyone said to me. Like that you that people are like literally trying to find the box to put us in, cool. and we uh -huh. cannot be contained. So right, they love they it. love to put you in boxes though. <laughs> you know. You're listening to the Live Wirehouse Party from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. And we are talking to Kev Marcus and Will B from Black Violin. We got to take a quick break, but don't go anywhere because when we come back, they are going to play us a song which you do not want to miss. So stick around. This is Live Wire. Live Wire is thrilled to be partnering with Portland's own Portal T this season. Formerly known as Tea Chai Tay, Portal Tea is the premier tea company in the Pacific Northwest. And they make one-of-a-kind handcrafted tea blends like cinnamon churro chai and blueberry cream Earl Grey. Use the code LiveWire, all lowercase, for 20% off at portaltea.co. Welcome back to the Livewire House Party from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello, and we're talking to the guys from Black Violin. Do you guys feel like you draw from the world of, of string music about equally to, say, the world of hip hop? I, I, I don't think that it's 50-50. I think maybe when we started, it was a bit more 50-50 because we were super classical, like in college, you know, in the throes of it, studying it. But we lived hip hop. So we felt like, you know, a lot of re the, the reason why we were successful at the beginning was because we blended it with such great respect for both sides, you know, whether it be classical or hip hop. Cool. Um, now... I mean, I don't know. I like, you know, Will, you said something to me in, a, in the other day in an interview about like, you don't even think of yourself as a classical musician anymore, which is crazy because you play viola and that's the only thing a viola <laughs> can be is classical, you know? Um, at, at this point, maybe like we've kind of created our own like string sound that that's what we kind of draw from at mm -hmm. this point, you know? Like we've already been influenced by the classical and now it's sort of like kind of, you know, cementing the black violin sound. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you just said it. I mean, the reason why I feel like for me, 
it's hard for me to consider myself a uh, classical musician because it's it's again that whole idea of being in a box. You know, it's just mm-hmm. I like to pluck my my viola like a guitar. Like I love doing that. I do that more than a bow. You know what I mean? So for me, I just been going in this direction. And to answer your question, it's definitely not fifty fifty, but I would say for me, it's probably like seventy thirty. Which one's the seventy? The 70 is everything else and the classical is 30, gotcha. <laughs> you know, because because, you know, I, I like to I like to just dabble and, and do a lot of different things. And and um, I love chamber music. I love certain composers, you know, Shostakovich. And but, you know, I think we live in the, it's 2021. I think the idea of classic music being in this box, we got to we got to move from that, because if this if this genre is going to survive, it, it's got to move away from this idea that it needs to be this. It needs to be that the stereotypes or whatever. Yeah. And for me, I'm 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 gone. <laughs> I'm not thinking about this genre in terms of trying to trying to fit its mold. I also feel like I feel like hip hop, the musicality of hip hop sometimes uh, is a little bit overlooked. Like I was just watching this Biggie doc on Netflix and. Uh, a guy who kind of like his was his neighbor was Biggie's neighbor growing up was talking about how he taught him about Max Roach's drumming and how Biggie would would basically, you know, phrase his stuff. And they overlaid Max Roach drumming and Biggie rapping. And it was like extremely musical. Right. Oh, yeah. I think that the hip hop culture in general um, yeah, is overlooked for its musicality. Truthfully, mm-hmm. I think, you know, everyone kind of looks at um, the, the lyricism, you know, mm-hmm. that's what everyone kind of looks to. But, you know, the reason why we got into this wasn't even because of, you know, like Biggie's rapping. It was the beats he were rapping on, mm-hmm. you know, like we wanted to be super producers and make beats for hip hop artists. I remember when we were younger, um, we were in the studio and we were the band for um, Pitbull and Rick Ross before they were huge, right? Oh, wow. Miami. And we were the band and Will was, we had this old picture where Will's playing drums, <laughs> I'm playing violin and, and, and Rick Ross is rapping to me, you know, and we're like rehearsing for, you know, for something like that. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, I remember even back then Rick was just like, man, those violins, they just do something to me, you know, like it's something about that. And, and I think, for us, we always knew that there was like this musicality that I think was uh, it's underrepresented and, you know, and could be expanded. So we were like, OK, well, how do we take our classical training and put it into hip hop and do something that people don't get? You know, so we were like, how do we put like, you know, in classical terms, how do we modulate from you know, a C to an a E or something? Or how do we put secondary dominance or do all this extra kind of like, right. you know, musical theory stuff to hip hop? Mm-hmm. You know, that's. <laughs> what we were like we're like well that that's what we should do that's what we know and we um we understand hip-hop but then at the end of the day people just wanted us to play violins on it and just do our thing and <laughs> right. that, that was the right. thing you know but we were thinking about the production would you argue that you know you were talking about how classical forms over time have been kind of boxy would you argue that the musicality of hip-hop is less boxy or allows for morphing and changing and innovation Oh man, the birth of hip hop is all about, you know, just breaking that box and, and create, creating your own, you know, lane and your own mold. You know what I mean? That's, that's the, that's hip hop. You know what I'm saying? It's like the, the form of broken form. Like, exactly. Is, exactly. You know what I'm saying? And that's what hip hop is all about. And that's what's attractive about it. That's why everybody looks at it and is like, yo, I have a place. Like everybody has a place in hip hop. No matter who you are, where you, where you come from, what you look like. You have a voice within hip hop. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. As long as you respect the art form, that's that's crucial. You can't come into hip hop just like you got to understand what it is. And you got to respect the culture because it is a culture. Mm-hmm. But everyone has has a way you can come in and kind of be yourself and, and be creative. And that's what hip hop is all about. And and um, obviously classical, there's limits to that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Are you guys uh, at this point tired of being constantly asked during interviews about your experience as black men, you know, playing violin and viola and in the classical space? Or is is that something that you accept as kind of like part of trying to really shake up what people's expectations are and getting the word out to other people, particularly young people of color, that the classical music and string music can be for them? Yeah, man, it, it doesn't bother us. I mean, it is what it is. Because when people see us on stage, even before they see us on stage, they just hear the idea of, oh, I'm coming to this concert. It's a violin concert. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> we come on stage. I'm going to speak the way that I speak. I'm from South Florida, so I'm, I'm going to speak with a little, you know, with a little twang or whatever. You know what I'm saying? And I'm going to play this violin because I've been trained to play this violin for 27 years. So, and uh, whatever perspective, whatever thought, you know, you had in your mind about the violin or about me, 
you know, hopefully they're shattered by the time you leave, uh, you know, leave the theater and, you know, buy a CD and buy a shirt at the same time. You know? Yeah, right. <laughs> you got to hit that merch stand got on to, the way man. out. <laughs> Do not miss the merch. Um, well, what song are we going to hear? All right. So, you know, speaking of all of this, you know, I mean, just this idea of doing things that people don't expect. Um, we're going to play the song Stereotypes off of our album. I was our third album. And this song in general is just really like a kind of like a, a microcosm of what people think, um, you know, they're supposed to do, you know, and we always like to say, hey, you know, when someone says, hey, you know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't do this because you're a girl or you shouldn't do this because you're too young or you're too old to be doing this. It's like, ah, that's what you should be doing because no one else is doing it. And you should be running towards shattering that stereotype. So uh, this one, uh, we call it stereotypes. All right. This is Black Violin on the Live Wire House Party. Black Violin right here on the Livewire House Party. Their album, Take the Stairs, is available now. And if you'd like to hear a longer version of that conversation, uh, go check out our podcast over at livewireradio.org or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Okay, before we get out of here this week, a little preview of next week's show. Uh, We are going to be talking to a Livewire favorite, the hilarious comedian Cameron Esposito. She's talking about her memoir, Save Yourself, uh, which covers the fact that she wanted to be a priest when she was a child and then eventually became a stand-up comic. There's got to be some overlap probably. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the Venn diagram intersects. Then we are going to be hearing from writer Ross Gay about his book, The Book of Delights. Uh, he embarked on this project to try to just like identify one small little moment of joy every day for a year, which actually presented some challenges, as he's <laughs> going to tell us about. Uh, the, the, the final project was really lovely, though. Uh, so we're excited about that. And then we're also going to be hearing music from The Lone Bellow. Plus, of course, we're going to be getting your listener answers to our question. Elena, what is the question for the Livewire listeners for next week's show? Well, in honor of Roske's amazing book, The Book of Delights, the question is, tell us about something that delights you. 
All right. If you want to send your answer in, you can do so on Twitter or Facebook or any of those other social media type places. We are usually found at the handle at Livewire Radio. Uh, that is going to do it for this episode of the Livewire House Party. A huge thanks to our guests, Lauren Huff, Kiara Alegria Hudes, and Black Violin. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Heather D. Michelle is our executive director. Tim Harkins is our production director. Our producer and editor is Melanie Sevchenko. Our assistant editor is Trey Hester. And Jennifer Vo is our social media manager. Our music is composed by A. Walker Spring. Molly Pettit is our technical director and mixer. Additional funding provided by the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. This week, we'd like to thank member Chris Sheldrup Free of Damascus, Oregon. For more information about our show or how you can listen to our podcast, head on over to livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello and the whole Livewire crew. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Dear Livewire, when we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait, actually, no, sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of Livewire read on the program itself. Uh, Reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time because we love having this job. Uh, Thank you so much if you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast.